Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. On behalf of Disciple of City, I'm Todd Carlton, and this is the Toddcast. Friends, download the United Hive app so you can share and read testimonies of salvations, healings, baptisms, and more that are happening all over the world. Designed to encourage and help mobilize the body is the United Hive app. You can also visit everydisciplesent.ca for resources to help equip you to share the gospel and find evangelism equipping events that may be happening in your area. And of course, follow the podcast on Instagram at the Toddcast underscore DAC. Now on with the show. In 1934, Louis Pelot was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina. He gave his life to the Lord at the age of 12 and heard Billy Graham on the radio in 1952. In the early 60s, he would end up moving to America, getting married, having the first of two of his four sons, and working for Billy Graham as a Spanish translator. He began a radio ministry in 1964, and with the help of Billy Graham, started his own ministry doing crusades for hundreds of thousands of people all over the world, including Honduras, Guatemala, Peru, Mexico, and Nicaragua. The Louis Palau Association was formed, and would later see Europe, Russia, and China. Although Louis had passed on to be with the father, the ministry continues with his sons at the helm. And my guest today is the president and CEO of the Louis Palau Association. He has helped to move the ministry from a crusade model to a festival model. And here to share his story is Kevin Palau. <laughs> wow, and the fans cheer. Thank you, Todd. Yeah. Great to be on the Toddcast. Well, we're glad to have you. Thanks. It's really nice to meet you, and thanks for taking some time to be with us today. Absolutely. So quite uh, quite an extensive history and, and, and travel, and uh, yes. man, I'm really excited to, to just hear your story of, of being on this wild ride and, and then now heading up this, this whole organization. Yeah. It's been over 50 years. Yeah, exactly. For me, it's been 36 years of formally been working with the Palau Association since I graduated from Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, which is where Billy Graham met his wife, Ruth Graham. So it's kind of a little bit of evangelical or evangelist history there. But yeah, I've loved working, traveling all around the world and really working to mobilize the body of Christ, typically hundreds or in some cases, even thousands of churches in a, in a large metro area working together to pray for the community, serve the community, as well as share the good news. So we that's kind of in our DNA, an ability to unite the body of Christ to share the good news. We love it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. We love that too. Um, well, let's go back to, to the beginning when, when you were a kid, I mean, when you were, when you were born, your dad had this radio show and, and just, he yeah. had, he had met Billy Graham, right. And so started that whole thing. Yes. So well, go ahead. Yeah. Dad, I mean, dad, um, dad had from the time he was a teenager, he had this passion to share the good news. He grew up in Argentina in a actually a pretty small, pretty separatist church. You'd almost say like a fundamentalist kind of church that pretty much believed they were it. Nobody else had it right. So, but dad, even despite that upbringing, which he, there were parts of it he loved because they loved the word of God and they loved direct evangelism. I mean, dad grew up in this little small group, but they would go on weekends and preach the gospel on the streets and things that, you know, 
relatively few believers are comfortable doing those kind of things. But dad had a heart for it. And he really um, just just had this desire to see the good news shared in in whatever means, you know, through whatever means possible. So for me, I grew up in a family that obviously loved evangelism, grew up in the same, like a local church in Portland, Oregon. My mom was from Oregon, Oregon. Dad was from Argentina. They met at a Bible school in Portland, Oregon, in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. And um, pretty much that Portland has been home most of my life. And it, it, for Canadians that are listening in, the Pacific Northwest is, is a pretty Canada-like place. It's not the Bible Belt. Portland is a place that, um, like Canada or like the UK or Australia, it's, it's a pretty challenging place. It's not the Bible Belt. So I grew up in a place where people didn't really know my dad, which is kind of a blessing. In Latin America, my dad's really well known, kind of like the Billy Graham of Latin America. But for me, it was a very normal upbringing, uh, going to public schools in the western suburbs of Portland and sharing my faith with, uh, with you know, kids in middle school and high school. So I never had the big, you know, bug to stand on a stage and preach to thousands of people. But I really had a desire to share the good news and came to the Lord personally, um, you know, like a lot of people that grew up in a Christian home, I heard the gospel over and over again and prayed to receive Christ many times <laughs> just to be safe. <laughs> and it's like, well, I, I think I have, but here's another opportunity. You know, I did something bad last week. Maybe it didn't take, maybe I better, you know, receive the Lord again. So it took me probably till I was 16 in high school at a camp to kind of say, you know what, I, I do know the Lord, but I'm going to really dedicate my entire life to the ministry. And so from 16 on, and there was a guy named Keith Green, my twin brother and I went to a Keith Green concert. Uh, and that was a place as well where I kind of made a really clear recommitment of my life and wanted to be involved in somehow in global missions. From the time I was in high school, I really had this, this sense, like I am going to devote my life some way, shape or form just spreading the gospel. So when you guys were kids, you when he would do these crusades, you guys would go as well, even yeah, even throughout high time. school or even throughout. Yeah, although you know, so especially if during during school holidays or especially during the summer, where there'd be three months off, wherever Dad would be having what we used to call crusades and we now call them festivals, we would go to Aberdeen, Scotland, or Cardiff, Wales, or San Jose, Costa Rica. We would just have the chance to be there for a few weeks. And for me, it really, it, it touched my heart to see the beauty of the body of Christ working together. Hundreds of different churches who might worship a little differently. They might interpret secondary theological matters a little differently, but in their heart, love Jesus, want to see people come to know Christ. I really caught the bug for that kind of unity pretty early on. So I guess too, if you, as a, as a kid, if you're going and you're, you know, because it's your dad, you're backstage in, in front of all, all these people, I guess it's quite, it, it just was likely quite normal for you from, from an early age. It was normal. Yeah, it was, it was normal. And dad, you know, thankfully my mom and dad, you know, they were well known, pretty well known. They were the real deal. Praise the Lord. They were amazing parents, not perfect, but they, uh, you could see, we could see our whole lives growing up that they loved what they did. It wasn't about a big show. It wasn't about 
an incessant gaping hole that they're trying to fill to have people, you know, love me, love me, give me no, you know, notoriety. I mean, unfortunately we've all, if you've been around much, you meet different Christian leaders and, you know, even giving them the benefit of the doubt, there's times you meet someone that you say like, wow, I wonder what they're, what they're in this for with dad. Boy, he was a real deal. He died. He went, like, as you mentioned, went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago, but man, right to the end, big opportunities, small opportunities, sharing with a server, uh, the last week of his life when he got to a point where he, you know, he couldn't travel for about the last two years of his life as, as lung cancer got worse, never smoked a day in his life, but that of lung cancer, um, at 85, but boy, the, like the last week of his life, the last thing that he did was, uh, meet one-on-one with each of his 12 grandkids that at that point were like from 28 down to eight years old or so. And if they were already believers, one last opportunity to to challenge them to live their lives for the Lord and express his incredible love for them. And for those that are wavering or pretty weak in their faith, just the last appeal to, Hey, David, Hey, James, whatever. I want to know that we're going to be together for eternity. And just that was dad. He had such a passion. He loved people. People knew that he cared about them, even strangers. There was something, he was an incredibly winsome guy and full of energy. I mean, it was a real privilege to work with him, to have him as a dad, but also to work with him for decades. So what did you do as you got in? Well, yeah, you were part of it. But like you said, at camp, you wanted to, you wanted to give your life to global yeah, ministry. Missions, but you know, it's funny. I was not thinking of working with the plow association. It could, it, it might sound like, Oh, well, this was just kind of like expected, or you were supposed to do this. I went to Wheaton college, a non, a non-denominational evangelical liberal arts college thinking I was going to be a missionary to the Muslim world. Uh, really just because I heard a number of amazing uh, missionaries to the Muslim world came to Wheaton and, made the point that it's a challenging place and that there are fewer people working in that, you know, among that population group. And it's a challenging place. So I just thought practically, well, Hey, if there's fewer missionaries there, let me go to where the need is. And so I was planning all the way through my college days to um, uh, go get a master's in cross-cultural communication, and then maybe go and be a missionary in Pakistan or someplace my wife and I dated through um, kind of through the college years. And I remember when we first met, this is, this sounds very pretentious and kind of obnoxious, but here I am this like sophomore in college and she was just finishing up high school. And I'm like, well, we're not even start dating unless you can commit for sure that you're willing to be a missionary to the most of the world. So here she is like 16 years old, like, well, I guess, I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, looking back, I was a bit full of myself. It was sincere. But so I started working with the Plow Association right after graduating. My twin brother, Keith, did the same thing. In my case, I was just going to do it for one year. Uh, My wife and I got married right after college. So it was just going to be for one year to kind of get stable into marriage, pay off some student loans, and then go off to seminary and then begin my life working with Muslims. But within, it's funny, within about three months of working with the organization, I kind of re-fell in love with the mission of the organization and, and, and actually even felt like, wow, when we're doing big festivals that are drawing, that are filling the national stadium in Singapore, for example, 
and there's a significant, you know, po Muslim population in Singapore or in a place like London or in Jakarta, Indonesia, I actually thought, wow, I'm, I could potentially be a part of reaching more Muslims and helping them understand the good news of Jesus by staying with the Palau organization than just being one thing, you know, one solitary missionary couple, et cetera. So it started there and I just fell in love with the mission of the organization, as I mentioned earlier, particularly with the ability to see the church, not necessarily every single congregation, but in many cases, the majority of the churches in a particular city, in New York City, 1,700 churches, or in Buenos Aires at times, over 2,000 churches of all denominations saying, let's work together for this year or two years of preparing God's people to share their faith. I know that's part of what Disciple of City does is how do you get everyday believers to believe and remember the joy of their own salvation and to have that confidence to say, God can use me. I'm I'm not a Billy Graham or a Luis Palau or like the pastor of my church necessarily, but if I'm open, if I'm praying, if I'm looking for those open doors that God could give me, if I'm willing to just simply humbly share a little bit of my own story or be willing to pray for people, wow, I think God could use me. So that's a big part of what we do is to try to help thousands or in some cities, maybe tens of thousands of everyday believers get reignited in their passion to share their faith or, or to even just take a baby step and say, I'll begin praying that God will open doors and believe that God could use even me. Cause most, most people aren't overconfident. They lack the confidence and they kind of feel like, well, how could God use me? I'm not necessarily gifted, but of course, scripture over and over again, Moses, there's lots of people in scripture that started off that way. Yeah. And of course the enemy wants, wants the body to be quiet, right. And leave it to 100%. the Billy Grahams and, and, and your dad and stuff. Or, or the culture, you know, the headwinds we faced in the West of keep it to yourself. Yeah. You know, if you want to be nice and love and serve, that's great. But the minute you start actually talking about Jesus or his call on your life or the radical nature of being a Jesus follower, Hey, now you're going too far. So yeah. at least, or at least we feel that way that I'm going to make enemies if I try to share my faith. Yeah. Which is, which is not true. Not true. So not true. Uh, so is there a difference between a crusade and a festival? Like I said that with that model. So what's the difference yes. or what was the shift? Yeah. What was the shift? You know, so for me, when I joined the organization, you know, I mentioned dad. So if people know who Billy Graham is, I mean, dad learned from the best. He learned from Billy Graham and for decades, we did that Billy Graham style crusade. We would go to a, a soccer stadium or a basketball arena and you would have, I mean, I remember we used to do like multiple weeks long, or when I first started in the U.S., it was like a Sunday to a Sunday, eight nights in a row in a in an arena. And you would, dad would share the gospel night by night. And so as the culture shifted, though, at least in the West, this was not quite so much the same as in, like in Africa or Latin America, in the developing world, that traditional crusade sort of approach works more positively but in the west what we found was that we were it was it was harder and harder for us to get actual unbelievers to come to an arena to hear an evangelist preach i mean as the culture shifted it's like 
that's not an and that's not an easy invitation for the believer in many cases. So it wasn't rocket science in our home city of Portland, Oregon, because it's a pretty radically unchurched place. It's among the least churched parts of the U.S. We recognized that that approach was going to be a hard sell. So we did something again. This is not rocket science. This was about 15 years ago. We said, okay, what would make it a little bit easier for people to invite their friends and neighbors? Let's not do, let's have a, let's have a free music festival. So let's go to Waterfront Park in Portland where the city puts on the blues festival and the jazz festival. Let's get corporate sponsors. So we were able to get like the Portland Trailblazers, our NBA team and Wells Fargo Bank and Pacific Power. We thought if we could get corporate sponsors, have a family fun zone. So you're not getting a babysitter, you know, leaving your kids at home like you would if it was a crusade, you know, sitting in a seat. It's like you're in a park. You got stuff for the kids to do. You got to you build a skate park and and bring in pro skaters. So you've got something that attracts that kind of a, a group. You would have then uh, a, just a two-day music festival. So we tried this in Portland, Oregon and had 10 times as many people come. We had 50,000 people come over the two days. Wow. And so we thought, wow, this was really something in a pretty unchurched place like Portland. And we also built it around community service. In a place like Portland, we said, what could we do that would begin to break down some of the negative stereotypes that many Portlanders have about those Christians? You know, you're just anti this and anti that. So we thought, well, we we felt like uh, Jeremiah 29, 7 was a passage the Lord led us to. Um, seek the shalom of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. So this idea of what would it look like for the churches of Portland to actively seek the welfare of our city and to do it actually in partnership with our, our mayor and our school superintendent. So we went to see the mayor at the time. The mayor of Portland was the first openly gay mayor of a top 25 city in the country. And so he had some like, hmm, what are these evangelicals coming to meet with me about. So when we met with him and said, hey, we know that as Christians in a place like Portland, unfortunately, we're known more for what we're against than what we're for. We didn't intend for that to be the case. But sometimes the way the media portrays Jesus followers, it can seem like it's only you're anti this, you're anti that group. You know what? It's not that we are pretending that we're in agreement on everything with the city, but we really want to love and serve Portland, make it a better place help us find some ways that, that we could mobilize the people from our churches to love Portland. So that, that, that led us to a six month period of time where almost 30,000 Jesus followers participated in hundreds of projects, helping improve public schools, doing makeovers of some public schools, working in the foster care system, starting a refugee care collective. So it was amazing to see um, one, Churches were already serving, of course, but nobody had taken the time to kind of figure out who was doing what. So part of the value of this, we discovered, was just simply saying, oh, look at the amazing ways that Jesus followers are already loving and serving the community. But also then this energized approach where we were going to have the six-month period of serving the city. Then the festival would be not only this clear gospel proclamation, it would be a celebration of a city-sponsored community service effort. So the mayor, here's the mayor of Portland, Oregon, openly gay, very proudly progressive, on the stage of this festival, thanking 
these 25,000 people that are there in front of the stage and in his mind, oh, these are the people that I saw all spring and summer. I went to Roosevelt High School and I sat there and worked with a thousand people that must have been these kind of people that did a makeover of this high school. And so he's the one that said, this was the best community service effort in the history of our state. Let's keep this going. So it's funny. It changed our whole mindset because our model had been adopted from Billy Graham. You you prepare God's people for this festival. You do the festival and it's over and you go on to the next place. Well, when the mayor says, when the mayor assumes that the united movement of the churches in Portland to love and serve the city is going to continue, he just assumes it. He kind of declares it. And then, and then we're left to say, uh Oh, all of a sudden, we got to change our whole model. What would it look like for us to actually try to maintain the unity of the churches? So it's funny. Since in this 15 years since, it changed our entire model. Not not model in the sense of like mobilizing the church to share the gospel, but saying, what if we mobilize to love and serve the community and share the gospel? And then when the festival's over, the the desire and the intent would be that these churches would continue. So we're now aware of over a hundred cities across the U S I'm not taking credit for this. Some have come from Palau festivals. Many others are just homegrown examples of the unity of the body of Christ. And now our role within the Palau association in many cases is to come alongside these movements that many have formed around unity and loving the community. Evangelism has tended to be a bit of a weak spot. So we've come along to say, as you're, loving and serving the community as you're working toward unity, which is amazing. We've endorsed that hundred percent. Don't forget evangelism. What kinds of things? So I'm on the alpha board, for example, uh, alpha USA. Uh, we've partnered with alpha and youth for Christ and campus crusade and many others to say, what would it be like in city after city to see a, a more united effort to inc- inspire and equip an evangelism. So anyway, I went way a big tangent over there. But our heart at the Plow Association is just to see the gospel go forward through the local church. And it's just been interesting to see how the model goes from a stadium crusade to an outdoor music festival with action sports and a food court and a family fun zone to saying, let's do that festival. But as part of a more sustained movement of the churches, because the gospel needs to be shared at all times and in all seasons, not just when there's the energy and the finance to do, to do something big. Yeah. So it's kind of helped us. We think become even more effective at what we do. Yeah. That's good. And that's, that's adapting to the culture that you're in too, right? Exactly. Well said. So now do you guys, do you still do um, crusades in other countries? Is there still, we still call them festivals, but basically, yes, we do. We'll work with, uh, we were just in San Jose, Costa Rica, and had over 100,000 people come over the two days of a massive festival. We did Buenos Aires in November. We're doing Cairo, Egypt, Nairobi, Kenya, wow. um, Teesside, which is this region kind of north northeast of England. So we're always doing six to eight of what we call festivals um, all around the world, mobilizing God's people, equipping people to share their faith encouraging them to love and serve the community and then having an evangelist in this case my my younger brother andrew who has the really interesting testimony because he didn't come to, to clear faith in jesus till he was 27 after a 
lifetime of of partying and kind of thumbing his nose at the family, uh, so to speak. He had a radical conversion at a Palau festival in Kingston, Jamaica, at 27 years old. One of those classic radical went from all the lifestyle that goes along with partying and everything else to just boom, 180 degree turnaround. And now he and his Jamaican wife, Wendy, are the, are the evangelists with the Palau Association that, that preach at these big festivals. Yeah. So, the, yeah. So I was going to ask you that. So, so Andrew's now the evangelist. Andrew's the evangelist. And funny, he, he, same thing. It sounds like, oh, well, you must have flipped the coin and one of you had to be the evangelist. It's like, nope, he was the one that w- was not following Christ all through, you know, his younger years, middle school and high school. And he wasn't like angry atheist and thumbing his nose at the family, but just like, that's not for me. I can't live that way. And he just loved to party. And at the, at his rock bottom, like, like you hear so often with people's stories, he was living in Boston, working at a, uh, in retail and, you know, on the outside, everything looked great. But on the inside, he's like, he just was so empty from partying virtually every night, you know, couldn't, couldn't go to sleep sober because he just felt like all the shame and the guilt. So he'd kind of either go to a party and then come home and sleep it off and go to work the next day. Or if he's by himself, just kind of freak himself to sleep. Well, that's the situation where he accepted the invitation from my mom and dad, of course, had been praying for him and sharing with him throughout his whole life. It wasn't, he didn't know the gospel message, but they invited him to Kingston, Jamaica, and he loves to fish. So they lured him with a promise of Marlin fishing in Jamaica. And he's thinking of drinking some red striped beers on the beach. And I can <laughs> handle this Christian stuff. That's fine. I've dealt with it my whole life. So he comes to the national stadium in Kingston Heard the message for the thousand and one, thousand and first time. And for whatever reason, it just, that was God's moment for him. And he absolutely had a radical turnaround. So now, you know, over time, he just realized that he has a gift of sharing the good news. And I think partly because he had this more classic kind of radical conversion. He fully understands the emptiness of life apart from Christ. And he can relate to people that maybe grew up thinking they understood the gospel, thinking that they wanted a more, a life of freedom and do what I want and realizing that that's enslaving yeah. and that only Christ offers true freedom. Wow. Wow. That's something else. What, what's it like? You, you mentioned, uh, Egypt, Cairo, Egypt. So yeah. when you guys go around the world, what's it like? Obviously you're accepted because you're doing a, a festival there, but what's it like when you go into a place like Cairo, Egypt or Indonesia, where there's a heavier Muslim heavier, presence? Yeah, non-Christian, like in this case, Muslim context. Yeah. So, you know, you can't do it in, in, in some places. Egypt has enough, about 10% of Egypt's population would at least identify as Christian, mostly Coptic, kind of Egyptian Orthodox Christian. But there's a solid group. I mean, one, many of them are genuine on fire, Jesus followers, not just cultural Christians. And so the government is a little more open. But even there, we would not do it in like a public, like normally we want to be, you know, like in Central Park in New York City or you know, Trafalgar Square in London or shut down the widest avenue in Buenos Aires, you know, but in this case, it's like, we've only been able to do it for safety reasons 
at a big sports camp at the largest church in the Middle East, an amazing church called Qasr El Dabara, about 5,000. They're incredibly evangelistic. They are so on fire in evangelism of a lot of young people. And so they built an amazing sports camp with, with swimming pools and skate parks, et cetera, about 20 kilometers outside of Cairo. And it's kind of a secure location, but they can, they actually built like an arena, if you can believe it, they can seat 8,000. Oh. And so they, they kind of learned this idea of a festival. They came to some of the festivals we did and said, we want to do that here. And so every year they have like an evangelistic youth festival, three nights, they'll get 8,000 people, they'll bust them in. But even there, like you have to be careful. You can't, if you're caught with big stacks of invitations, you could get arrested. So it's, it's like a one-on-one -on -one inviting people, inviting friends. Hey, we're going to come to the sports camp and have a great time. And so you'll have 20 some thousand people. Um, certainly some are nominal Christians that are, that come alive to their faith, but many others are Muslim friends that would be brought by friends. So, you know, whether it's always where there's a will, there's a way, as you know, Todd, I mean, if your heart is burning, to find a way to share the good news. Yeah. The spirit will lead you and it looks different in every context. Yeah. And and it would and it would appear in some travel that I've done and stories from others that really radical stuff happens in a good way when you're in these other countries. Hey. Dreams. Exactly. You've probably heard some of the same stories that I have. I mean, of literally dreams and visions and Yeah. I mean, um so yeah, it's, it, it, it is amazing. And, and, you know, it's encouraging. We love to do things in the hard places, which the West, I mean, Canada, U S sadly getting harder and harder Western Europe, there are places like that that are really jaded and kind of post-Christian. So, so-called in the one sense, it's like, you know, there's, there's really just always pre-Christian. <laughs> I mean, for <laughs> individual, there's no such thing as post-Christian. But but I know what they mean. I mean, the, the, the places where people feel like been there, done that, tried it, found it wanting. So, you know, we do things there, but it is amazing to go to places like parts of Asia, much of Africa, Latin America, where, the, where there's still a tremendous hunger. There is a, um, a desire. There, there's an acceptance of the supernatural as more of a normal part of life. There isn't the quite the impact of of uh, some of the ways of thinking that basically have eliminated the possibility of the supernatural uh, to even have it exist. Many parts of the world are like, no, there's an assumption, of course, that we live in a world where we can't see everything that actually exists. And there's a world of spirits. And yeah. so the, the different contexts provide different opportunities. Yeah. So you guys have offices in multiple countries. Is that correct? Yeah, so in, in we in um, across the U.S. and then uh, in Malawi, it kind of covers Africa. London area covers UK and or Western Europe, et cetera, and Buenos Aires, Argentina. So yeah, we're not a giant organization; we're kind of medium sized, but yeah, we have some great folks that work with us. And so those offices, do they? like say in Argentina, would that be the yeah. office that when you go to South America, they're the ones that Correct. sort of do all the legwork? Exactly. They would be the ones that, that would be working with um, the leaders in Montevideo, the capital of Uruguay, a couple of years ahead of time that are saying like, we would love to have a Palau festival here because we need an excuse to mobilize the church, to work together and do all these great things. And, you know, it's been, 
usually we say every at least every 10 years or so we encourage cities to say doesn't have to be with us but do something that gives an excuse for the body to really be visibly together and um there's an encouragement that comes in the lives of believers to be reminded that my church isn't all that there is especially in places where churches you go to a smaller church it's like oh boy that was exciting to to be there and to worship together and to declare the good news and to love and serve the city together. We're part of a beautifully diverse community. The most diverse community in the history of the world is the church of Jesus Christ. The movement that's had made more of a difference than any other movement in history began on the day of Pentecost and now encompasses, you know, well over a billion people from in virtually every country, every context, from the richest of the rich to the poorest of the poor, from people with a lot of social cachet to people that no one will ever know their name, all indwelt by the same spirit of Jesus Christ, empowering them to live not perfectly. I mean, we we know the church has a lot of weaknesses, but I would still defy anyone to to tell me about a movement that's made a difference in the lives of more people in more contexts than the church. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how did you end up in that position? Like, do you have a, a business sense or what were the different roles that you yeah, played within you know, the organization? A good, that's a good question, Todd. I mean, I would say like, I would, again, I was, I wasn't even planning on working with the Palau team. I was the assistant to the director of the, of the crusade department who had, who had, um, been with the team for, for, you know, 20 years at that point. So I kind of learned the ropes. I mean, I'd been, I'd grown up in it in one sense, but of course I didn't know how things actually worked. How do you get an invitation that's viable from the churches? How do you develop that? How do you, you know, when do you know that it's the right timing to accept it? So I kind of learned the ropes, but six months after I got there, this guy quit, not, not under bad circumstances, but he was called, to go back to the mission field, et cetera. So it's like, okay, well, Kevin, you're 22 years old, but you can just be the interim director while we look for somebody. So a year goes by, a couple of years go by, and I'm I'm kind of guiding these people that are 20 years older than me. And, and I just kind of have a, I don't know, I have a knack for it. I started traveling and, and um, you know, casting the vision to groups of leaders in various cities and kind of learned on the job. And probably three years into it, the leadership, my dad and the leaders of the team, the, the board of directors are kind of like, gosh, it's actually working really well. <laughs> so maybe we should just take the interim off. So, yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I don't have a master's in business administration, but I think the way God wired me, I, I'm not the up, you know, on the stage proclaimer, but you know, in one sense, that's a strength in that I it 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 doesn't limit my vision to like well what's going to be most effective for me as the evangelist. It's more like what are all the various creative ways the gospel could could go forward. In addition to the festival side of things, we have almost we have uh, over twenty five hundred other evangelists that are part of what we call the global network of evangelists. They don't work for us. Um, there's no money changing hands, but it's just like, we learned from Billy Graham, the hard, you know, dad learned the hard way, just like volunteer and just learn the best. We said like, wow. Yeah. When it comes to partnering with other evangelists and this global network of evangelists, dad had to learn it kind of the old fashioned way. He, 
he and mom were unpaid interns at the 1962 Fresno, California, Billy Grand Crusade. And dad just kind of learned the ropes. Well, there's thousands, probably, who knows, millions of people in the kingdom that have some sort of gift or calling in evangelism. Maybe not, again, not necessarily to stand on the stage and preach to large crowds, but they have this internal passion and drive to share the good news. We love to come alongside those kind of people, those younger men and women that think they have a gift or calling in evangelism and just get them connected to others in their country. We have, um, as I mentioned, over 2,500 evangelists in 70 different countries now that we kind of help find each other, pray for each other, and just learn to help each other be more effective. Wow. And then one last thing I'll mention is on the digital side. You know, if you if you have a heart to see people come to Christ, so many people, especially young people, live on social media. And social media can be a tremendous force for darkness and evil and depression and anxiety. And I'm not good enough and people challenging your faith. But it can also be an incredible place for people to share the authenticity of their relationship with Christ. And we have a one part of our ministry called Hope with God um, has a Facebook community of 20 million around the world, many of whom have come to faith. We see 40,000 people every single week indicate a commitment to Christ from over 100 different countries just from daily Facebook and Instagram ads that wow. drive people to a website where they then hear the gospel and then can say, you know what, I think I'm ready to respond to the good news. So it's amazing how even, you know, technology can be a tremendous tool to share your faith. I would even say to listeners, you know, don't neglect the opportunity you can have to just share your own story on your own social media. Totally. Don't assume that everyone that's that's watching you on social media is already a believer. And for many people, them seeing you share the difference Jesus makes. It's amazing that we've come across a number of evangelists. We would call them evangelists that are like teenagers in there's one young woman in Mexico is like 16 years old, has over a million followers, you know, in Spanish on her social media accounts, shares the gospel, sees tons of people respond to the good news just because she's this young, winsome Mexican woman who just talks to people, shares what's going on in her life. In some cases, she'll just go on the streets and kind of, Pray with people. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit gifts people to use what they've got in their life to share the good news. Yeah, yeah. That Facebook page is called Hope for God. Is that correct? Hope with God. Yeah, Hope, Hope with God. With God. Yeah, Hope with God um, in English. And then, you know, there's a Spanish one too. You can link to it from there. But there's people from all these different countries um, coming to know the, coming to know the Jesus as a result of these ads that go out every single day, kind of highlighting the struggles people have with depression or anxiety and just saying, click here and learn more about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's amazing how hungry many people are. Yeah. Oh, what yeah. Do you think? And, you know, I also feel, too, that, you know, somebody that thinks, oh, I don't really have a story to share that that I also think is a tactic of the enemy. Yes, telling true. you you don't have a story when you do like this 16 year old girl in mexico that's fantastic exactly people just want to know that you believe something 
strongly that you that you're in love with Jesus that that he's made a difference in your life. Yeah, you don't have to have come out of a drug addicted background or have murdered somebody or you know people think that that's you say the lie is if it's not super dramatic and someone's going to make a movie about it it's not worth sharing. Yeah. Everybody struggles with self-doubt, anxiety, I'm not good enough. The fact that you can admit to the places where you're, where you continue to struggle, but the difference that it makes to know God's love and to know that your identity is primarily as a beloved son and daughter, people are drawn to someone who's willing to admit their faults and mistakes, not acting like they're perfect, but is also willing to admit that they need help and that God is an incredible source of, of what really makes life worth living. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning, you were talking about your work sort of more locally. Yeah. Um, you have a story of uh, helping with an inner city school and Nike. Yeah, yes. That was a really interesting one. When, we, when I mentioned where we first started this festival approach, where we went to see the mayor and said, how could we serve? And he got on board. Um, one of the first things he, he said when we asked him as mayor, what could you know, these Jesus followers from these churches do, he said, you know, we're only graduating a little over 50% of our students on time from high school because Portland Public Schools is really struggling. Particularly, he mentioned Roosevelt High School. It had been built in the 1920s for 2,000 students. And by the time we were having this conversation, there were 400 left. Because if you could get your kid out of Roosevelt, you'd done it. And if you didn't, if you hadn't, it was because you had absolutely no other options. They had no football team because they'd condemned the grandstands. And it was just like a physically deteriorating, very discouraging place for the faculty, for the staff that were there. Um, and so so one of the reasons Sam, Sam Adams, the mayor, one of the reasons Sam mentioned Roosevelt was we find out later that he had talked to the school superintendent, who also was a really prominent member of Portland's um, gay and lesbian community. And they'd said, well, we're probably going to shut Roosevelt down so we might as well let the Christians, you know, try. Cause like, what's the worst that can happen? How much, what, what could really happen? So we find out later on that he didn't give that, give us that project cause he was convinced anything good would happen, but because it felt like a low risk situation. Well, into that environment came hundreds and hundreds of amazing followers of Christ. One church in particular made it their major project and they happened to have some key executives from Nike that were part of this congregation. And they did an incredible, well-planned makeover. A thousand people came um, to a one-day makeover. I mean, it's amazing what they did. And that got Nike interested and involved over a period of about a year with Nike's help. They rebuilt the whole track and field, the football field, the, the, the grandstands. Um, they began mentoring these believers began mentoring every every kid in the freshman class. Uh, they began showing up at sporting events just to kind of cheer the kids on. Well, over over about a five-year period of time, Roosevelt really began to transform their on-time graduation rate, which is one of the key fa indicators, like doubled. They went from like worst to one of the best in the state. Wow. Um, a, the, you know, the Nike, as I mentioned, got involved. They, they ended up adding more and more and more students. So about five years into this, the um, well, actually about a year into it, the principal of that school came to 
this one woman, Christine, who was the outreach pastor from this big church that was bringing people all the time and said, you're here all the time with volunteers from your church. Why don't you just office here? So for years, Christine officed at the Roosevelt, became the volunteer coordinator, kind of managed all these different ways that church people were volunteering. And that led this superintendent that I mentioned, Carol, who started with a lot of misgivings because like many people from the gay and lesbian community, she'd had some not super positive, you know, connections and relationships. Her stereotypes about the Christian community were pretty negative in some cases because of direct experience and other cases, just from what she picked up. But after seeing the transformation of Roosevelt, she came to us and said, let's partner together to try to find a church partner for every school within Portland public schools. So over a period of time, you know, well over half the schools in the Portland metro area have a formal church partner. Now, most aren't big churches with full-time outreach pastors and Nike executives on board. That, that's kind of an extreme example of the transformation of Roosevelt. But many, many, many other schools have a small church that's, you know, where some of the kids go to that school that is there to help encourage the teachers and do some teacher appreciation events or help the teachers get the school you know, the classroom's ready for the new school year, or do a little, you know, help weed and just simple things that demonstrate the love of Jesus to these schools. And it's encouraging to see, in some cases, people that have come to faith in Christ because they've observed the difference uh, that Jesus makes and the love that he has for everybody. Yeah. And we're supposed to go, right? That's the whole thing of we're supposed That's to right. go out into the community as opposed to so trying to bring them people. in. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. That's a really, that's a really cool story. That's a really cool story. What's what's uh, next? What's on the horizon for the next month or so with your organization? Well, I think let's see the next um, the the next. Um, I'm going over to. I mentioned Alpha. I yeah. mean, your listeners are probably all over the place, but you know, Alpha I know is strong in Canada. Shayla Visser is a great friend, and I'm going over for a Alpha board meeting over there because we have a goal to see many many thousands of additional churches. Consider that as one more great way to. Um, to help share the good news. So I'm actively involved there. We're working on a a little one-day festival in a town called Klamath Falls, Oregon. And it's it's funny, in our home state, we'll sometimes do places in smaller places because we kind of feel a certain obligation to our kind of home community. The next big festival we have coming up is Nairobi, Kenya in September. That's a massive city. So there's always the next um, festival coming up. We're also involved in, as I said, every day the gospel is going forward on social media. That's been super exciting. And we're also part of something. This is this is on the U.S. side, so it probably wouldn't be familiar so much to Canadian listeners. But a family, this is amazing, a family um, that are wealthy in the U.S. have committed hundreds of millions of dollars of their own money um, and gotten some friends to join them to do the biggest Christian ad campaign in the U.S. history called He Gets Us. We had some Super Bowl spots. It's been an amazing thing to see these ads that just put forward in a pretty gentle way. They're not like direct evangelism, like pray to receive Jesus right now. They're basically getting people to think a little differently about Jesus and to make the point that Jesus understands what we're going through. So the Super Bowl spots led a million people to come to the website that day of the Super Bowl. And um, every day as these ads go all over mainstream U.S., people are coming to this website 
joining up U version reading plans, considering joining alpha groups. So things like that are encouraging to me when God leads people that are unknown, that have no influence to share the good, good news. And sometimes God leads people that have great influence to say, I'm going to take the resources God's given me and invest them into creative strategies to see the gospel go forward. That's amazing. That's great work. Kenya would be, uh, we do little, little things with Disciple City as compared to what you're doing. Um, but they're all right. They're all to, for the glory of God and to see people come Absolutely. to Absolutely. Yeah. When we talk about a big festival, people think that it's all just about the bands you get and, you know, this big attractional sort of event. And, but we would always say, it's not so much mass evangelism as it is personal evangelism done in a concerted way. It's always about helping individual believers gain that confidence to try to share their faith and invite people. The only reason people hear the good news is, is 90% of the time someone invited them. Someone invited them to church. Someone had a conversation with them. Someone invited them to an alpha group. Someone invited them to a big event, a festival or whatever, but it really is a place for every single person that's listening to this podcast, watching it to say, God, please use me. If you pray that prayer, I promise you, God will use you. It might not be exactly when and how you think, but I'd say any believer that sincerely prays, God, help me to see the open doors, help me to gain that confidence. You will have opportunities. I promise you, you will have opportunities to at least bear witness to the goodness of God, to share something about how good God has been to you, to pray with someone when they mention a need that they have or a struggle. There's just some little opportunity. It might not be the full meal deal where you're giving them the entire gospel or praying with them right then to receive Christ, but you can be a seed planter virtually every day if you're looking for those opportunities. Yeah, that's that's great. Well, Kevin, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for, for coming on and sharing sharing your ministry and your story and what you guys are doing down there. Thank you so much, Todd. Um, I appreciate Disciple of City, too. I, I appreciate the way you guys are, like us, really have a desire to see people encouraged and motivated to share their faith because everyone could do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and uh, it, it takes an army, right? So we all need That's to right. get out there. So we, we bless exactly you guys right. in, in your endeavors. Thank you so much, Todd. Uh, one day I would love to just witness something like what you're going to do in, in Nairobi. That would just be. Hey, come cool. along any, any time. If you, if you go to our website and see where we're going, literally just, just email me and say like, Hey, I want to come and somehow be a part of this, this place or some other place. We'd love to have you. <laughs> oh boy. Look at it. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Kevin, I just have uh, one, one final question for you. Um, I'm sure you obviously with all the festivals and everything, you, the, hundreds of stories, I'm sure. But can you share uh, a little bit about kind of the first thing that comes to your mind, whether it was your dad or, or now your brother preaching of somebody yeah. who just really got rocked with the gospel. And because you were there yeah, that either came to you or ended up with you after they yes. were so impacted by the reality. I can tell you, it's funny. Here's who, here's what, here's when it comes to mind. When I was a, when my twin brother, Keith and I were, were college students, we went over to London where dad had kind of a dream of his because the British missionary came to Argentina and led dad's family to the Lord in this suburb of Buenos Aires. So dad had this sense of a love for the UK and he had a Scottish grandfather. So dad had always wanted to do a big, 
mission in London. So he prepared for multiple years. We had this big crusade. We, we call it mission to London, but the, the final part of it was six weeks in a row in this soccer stadium, Queens Park Rangers, a premier league soccer stadium in 90, in the uh, fall of no, sorry, spring of tw- tw- uh, 1983. So we, Keith and I were there multiple nights and dad would be preaching to, you know, a low night might be seven or 8,000. And then someone like Cliff Richard would come and sing and you pack it out with 20,000 people. So one of the nights we, we heard about this one later on, not didn't meet him right then, but we heard about this 10 year old boy who, you know, he was really struggling. His dad had committed suicide. Um, his mom had remarried and he had a stepdad that was abusing him. So his life was as bad as you can get. And so he, his mom takes him along. They weren't going to church. His mom takes him to this stadium and he hears this guy named Luis Palau. I didn't know I knew who Luis Palau was. Here's this guy, Luis Palau, talking about God is a good father and he loves you and he can be the father. Because my dad's dad had died when my dad was 10 years old. So this young guy, Matt, absolutely understands the gospel at 10 years old. He goes forward with his mom, receives Jesus Christ, is discipled. So we didn't know this at the time. So, you know, 15 years later, we hear about this guy, Matt Redman, this worship leader who's written worship songs that many of us sing, you know, 10,000 reasons, et cetera. We're reading this worship magazine. Hey, Matt Redman, you know, how did you come to the Lord? And we're sitting here reading this story. Like when, when I was 10 years old, my life was at its low point. I went to hear this guy speak about God as a loving father. So Matt has been a friend for all these decades now. And he comes to many of our festivals and helps lead worship and, you know, shares the good news. And so it's, it's encouraged. It's so, it it is so encouraging to just think about what God can do in the life, even of a 10 year old, to think of every little thing that God uses where someone at 10 years old, in this case, Matt Redman, hears the gospel, responds, and then ends up having a lifetime of serving the Lord in ways that make a difference. So don't think that God can't use you. Wow. So, so well said. That That is pretty, uh, that is really inspiring. Yeah, Matt is an amazing guy and an amazing friend. And, and um, yeah, didn't meet dad until he was like, like 15 years later. And uh, we didn't even know that Matt had come to the Lord through through hearing dad until we read it in a Christian magazine. And so then, then it was like, we found a way to reach him. And, and of course he wanted to meet my dad. But ever since then, um, it's been amazing. Yeah, young people, kids can understand the good news. Amen. Thanks for keeping it going, Kevin. Thank you, Todd. Thanks for what you're doing. And, and I'm sure one of these days, like you say, if it's not in Nairobi, some other part of the world, uh, we'll find a way to work together. Yeah, awesome. Bless you. Bless you too. Thanks. Never sell yourself short, friends. Never listen to that lie that your testimony is not good enough or radical enough. And like Kevin said, just pray to him and ask how you can serve, how you can be a voice. We all need to get out there to share those that are searching. There's 10-year-olds that are hurting and broken. There's 50-year-olds that are hurting and broken. 
And Jesus is the way to peace. Be blessed. <laughs>